Listen now to the reading of God's word. We'll first start in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Matthew chapter 8, 5 to 13. The account of a centurion's faith in the Gospels. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And then our scripture reading is from, sermon text is from Acts chapter 15. I'm actually going to read a larger selection to give context to what we're going to see in the sermon. So I'm going to start at Acts chapter 14, verse 24. This is the account of Paul and Barnabas as they have returned from the first missionary journey and are given a report uh, returning to the church in Antioch of Syria, where they had been sent out, committed to the work of the Lord prior to the first missionary journey. So Acts 14:24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the, both Phoenicia and Samaria and describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after they had been, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Please be seated. So as we come to our text here this morning, we already saw the the context that I read, and then you see the title there is We Have Faith and Faith Alone. You can see where that title comes from. So this is, in one sense, a, a basic gospel message, a reminder of the gospel. The title comes from verse 11, where Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the overall context of the text, you heard me read believe and faith in the text, both for Gentiles and Jewish background believers. At this time in the history of Revelation, as God is unfolding his plan of salvation, we're being reminded that salvation is by faith alone, whether old covenant dispensation or new, that salvation is by faith for God's people. Overall, here in the context, we see that the church was gathering to discuss this question that came up from the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. They were out in the Gentile lands, and they were preaching the gospel, and people were coming to faith. But then there was a question about that that arose in chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is a big deal. Listen to what they said again. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Not anything other than the phrase saved. So... The issue was extreme. Paul and Barnabas had just come back from the first missionary journey and seeing the mighty works of God. Verse 12 of our text, Paul and Barnabas will relate what happened out in the Gentile lands. Remember, there was the healing of the the lame man, for instance, and there were many conversions. There was much opposition to the gospel out in the Gentile lands in the first missionary journey. They were out in what is now modern-day Turkey, that area, preaching the gospel in many towns and... People were coming to faith, and so they've completed that journey, come back to the church in Antioch, the church in Antioch of Syria, which is the church that sent them on the first missionary journey by this Holy Spirit. That church is kind of where Turkey meets, um, the, if you view Israel as like a vertical on the one end of the Mediterranean, Antioch and Syria is in that region, and Antioch and Syria is the sending church, and they're a mixed church of Jewish background and Gentile background believers. So that church commissioned Paul and Barnabas. They went out. People were converted, both Jewish background and Gentile background. They come back, Paul and Barnabas do, to report on that in chapter 14. And then verse 1 of chapter 15. Some people come down from Judea and basically say, you know, what happened out there in those Gentile lands, that's not complete. Those people aren't saved. They need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or else they can't be saved. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So this is happening in the church in Antioch of Syria. 
These men come down from Judea. Why does it say come down? Because Judea is up in the heights, you know, higher, higher elevation and also kind of this biblical context as well that Jerusalem's kind of the elevated area at the top and then you go down into other lands. So these men came down from Judea and they disturbed the disciples with what they were saying. The issue was big enough that the church commissioned or appointed Paul and Barnabas to go up to Jerusalem to have this issue settled. And so here we see the forming of a council. So you just were talking about the General Assembly, the PCA General Assembly is happening this coming week as well. The OPC General Assembly just recently happened. The way we do things, we believe, is biblical. As Presbyterians, we believe there is this idea that the church gets together to decide issues and to assemble together for things. And where do we take our warrant for that? Well, right here. You have a major theological issue about who is in the church. Is it the Pharisee background believers and their way of looking at things, that you've got to be fully converted to Judaism? Or is it the people Paul and Barnabas are witnessing to and what's happened in the Gentile lands, that the Gentiles do not have to ascribe to all these things, be circumcised in those things? What is the answer? The answer is extremely important because if it goes down the road that the some people could see this goes, you'd have Pharisee background believers, Jewish background believers, Gentile background believers, and they'd really be separate. And in the long run, that would not end well. We don't know exactly. It didn't work out that way, so we don't know how it would have ended. But it could have ended with two churches, one that probably would deviate into a works righteousness. The Pharisee background believers would probably slide into believing in some form of maintenance of salvation by works. And then you really would have two apparent churches, but only one true church if that had persisted. It might have been seeming okay for the peace of the church to avoid settling this issue. We have to be careful that we don't avoid issues in the church. We need to not make mountains out of molehills, but at the same time, if there is an important issue that has to be resolved in this period of history we now live in, by the way, right now we're in a period of history with this council where the scriptures are still open. That's an important distinction to this first council. We're now in this period of history where the scriptures are closed and that there's no further revelation, but we still look to the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us so that we come together and decide major issues for uh, the doctrine and the purity of the doctrine of the church. We read the Nicene Creed this morning. That's the result of a council, right? A council come together to clarify things about in the early church, the days of the early church. They did that when the canon was closed. So they were making decisions with the Nicene Creed that were helpful to the church, one of the ecumenical councils that we look to for our affirmations of faith that we have. So this issue was important. The church comes together and sets a pattern that we follow today. And as we see in our text now in verse 6, all this is happening to bring together the church in a way that they can decide a very important issue so that the truth of the gospel is maintained and done in such a way that the church works together in a demonstration of, of love that we have for one another, works out and settles an issue. So verse 6 here in our text, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
It's possible that the rest of the church was also present while the matter was discussed. And in, I've been going to presbytery meetings now for 15 years in the PCA, and at least the PCA presbyteries, you can go as a visitor to the presbytery meeting and listen to the deliberations of the meeting unless, unless for the benefit, unless in the special case where the presbytery goes into executive session. And sometimes there are sensitive personal matters that justify going into executive session. And at that time, then the guests would be asked to leave. I don't see any instance here where the topic being discussed was like that. So it's very possible you could have other people in the meeting or in the assembly when this is discussed, but it's definite that in verse 6, the apostles and elders take a leading role here. Once again, this is a pattern that we have in our churches that we believe is biblical. It's a representative form of leadership over the ordained leaders. You have that on your own local session as a as an OPC church, you have a biblical structure for your leadership going back to verse 23 of chapter 14. We saw elders being set up in every church that were in the lands that Barnabas and Paul had gone to. So this idea of an elder-led church, we believe as Presbyterians is biblical. So you have your local session to discuss issues, and then you have your presbytery to discuss and resolve issues and come together for the good of the church and then you have your General Assembly that comes together also, in the case of the General Assembly, once a year. All these things are biblical, and they are God's ordained process, we believe, to resolve the issues within the church and also to do the work of the church for the good and of the church and also for the glory of Christ. So verse 6, we see the church gather with the apostles and elders to discuss this issue and then in verse 7, the first part, it says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. So once again, in my experience in going to presbytery meetings, uh, they often are on Saturdays. I don't know how it is for you to go to presbytery meetings here, your OPC presbytery. Some of your drives are very long, maybe two hours to get to a presbytery meeting and two hours to get back, depending on where it is. And you might have to preach on the next morning if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, you may have to lead worship, you may have other things that you need to get done. And so something comes up at the presbytery meeting, what's the kind of a doctrinal point or something, you might be tempted to say, you know, let's just get through this real fast. Let's just have someone with a strong personality stand up and say, this is the way it is, all you other people get in line, and let's move on. I was in the army, I understand that way of doing things, you know. And just, we do this, move on, obey orders. That is not really what happened here in verse 7. I believe there's wisdom revealed here, the wisdom from God revealed in verse 7, that is tied to Peter not standing up immediately. As an apostle, Peter could have stood up immediately and just said, this is the way it's going to be, guys. But that's not what happened. In the... Uh, Book of Proverbs, we read in verse Proverbs eighteen seventeen, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. That's God's wisdom, and it's a principle that sometimes you just listen to someone speaking, and you just you don't hear any opposing views. You just go right along with what they're saying. You don't think critically. You don't challenge what they're saying, and so you 
accept what they say, and then a little bit later, you know, you think about it hard and you say, ah, wait a minute, I don't know if I should have gone along with that. I believe there's wisdom in the fact that Peter didn't speak immediately. He allowed debate. And I think in our presbytery meetings, even though there's a temptation to want to get presbytery over with and completed, in my experience, the presbyters have all been very good in understanding and wisdom that you need to talk through issues. You need to hear both sides. People need to hear um, what others have to say. They need to be allowed to say their view. And you need to have a discussion. Can't go on forever, admittedly, but there needs to be an exchange of ideas. Why? Well, I know from my own experience that I buy into what other people say, and I also am more willing to accept the fact that I'm on the losing side of a debate if I felt like I've been heard. As, a, as an employee in business, I offered uh, the opportunity to give my opinion on things. I always like the fact that I'm heard, and sometimes the decision goes my way, and sometimes it doesn't go my way. But I learned to accept that. And I believe there's wisdom here as the assembly, this first assembly, allowed there to be much debate over this very important topic. We are in the transition from Old Testament to New Testament in the book of Acts, this transition from Old Covenant um, administration of the gospel of grace and New Testament gospel administration of the gospel of grace. And this transition, it's understandable that people would be confused. It's understandable in verse 5, but some believers who belong to the part of the Pharisees, it's interesting, isn't it? Some believers. It doesn't say just some members of the circumcision party. It says some believers who are members of the um, party of the Pharisees are confused. We're going to find out how this all plays out, that they are confused, that they're mistaken. But it's understandable in this transition period that there's confusion, much debate's allowed, and therefore these people would be heard and they would felt heard as the, the assembly moves forward. So that was the, the second point I wanted to bring out just from the text is the structure of assemblies and the wisdom of these assemblies. And we as members in, in Presbyterian denominations should see God's hand moving in the establishment of this way of deciding things and trust in the Spirit's work in giving people wisdom as they go through these kinds of debates. And these are always ongoing. There's, there are debates in the PCA now. There's debates probably in the OPC. I'm not aware of the details of what's happening in the OPC, things that must be considered and discussed. This process goes back to 2,000 years to an assembly such as this here in Acts 15. The second part of verse 7, going on to verse 9, I wanted to read, as we see how Peter calls, after letting them discuss things, how Peter reminds them of something they should have remembered but apparently had forgotten. So, second part of verse 7. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This whole issue had been discussed before in, in the church in Jerusalem. And Peter's trying to remind them of that. But some time, some years had gone by since Acts chapter 10. 
and 11. If you want to turn your Bibles to follow along, uh, or you can just listen, I'm going to read from Peter's summary of his work with Cornelius and Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Again, this is an account reflecting back on Acts chapter 10, where Peter had gone to witness to Cornelius and his household. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirits told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So why is Peter speaking? Well, it's because they've already decided the issue, haven't they? If you read back in chapter 11, the issue was already addressed, and apparently the Pharisees, the Pharisee believers in verse 5, didn't either uh, fully understand that or weren't aware of the background there. But Peter stands up and reminds everyone of the situation. Brothers, you know, verse uh, chapter 15, verse 7, second part, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. I think that's significant. Peter's reminding them that what they're worried about with Paul and Barnabas, they shouldn't be worried about because the Gentiles already came into the kingdom. They came in in Cornelius' situation. And in Acts, you have these seminal events where the Holy Spirit comes on a group of people. He came on a group of people in Pentecost. He came on a group of... Samaritans, and he comes upon the Gentiles, and in chapter 10, when the Spirit fell upon the people there, and the believers from among the certain, and Peter was still saying these things, chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit 
was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So there is an, a miraculous expression of the coming of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius' household. So the Gentiles have already been brought into the kingdom, and Peter is now endeavoring to remind the church of these realities, and he's pointing out to them that this event has already taken place. And so this focus on Paul and Barnabas and their work over in the Gentile lands in Turkey, well, you know, that's not correct. We need to roll the clock back to the work that Peter did initially. And then Peter goes on to say, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, Peter's not making his argument here from the Old Testament. He is making his argument from experience and from revelation. Peter was told, clearly, by vision, to go meet with Cornelius, to go into the man's household. The accusation in chapter 11 of the circumcision party against Peter was, you, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were thinking Peter was guilty of making a mistake. Peter doesn't see it that way. And initially, you heard me read from chapter 11 that he was reluctant to go. But God showed him that he should go and not call these, these men like Cornelius and his household unclean, but take the gospel to that group of people. Peter went by revelation. Back in chapter 11, he didn't reference or didn't quote an Old Testament verse to justify going to the Gentiles. He just went by revelation. And that's a little different in our assemblies. Today, in our assemblies, we wouldn't, we wouldn't really permit someone to stand up and say, well, the Lord told me such and such, therefore we, the assembly, should make this decision. We don't work like that, this side of the close of the canon. But here in this assembly, in Acts chapter 15, there is an element where being, what's being discussed here is revelatory. It's revelation to Peter. Interestingly, and we're not going to preach on this passage, but a little bit later on in the assembly, after Peter speaks, in verse 13 and following, James speaks. James, the brother of Jesus. And James, when he speaks, he actually quotes the Old Testament. So you have both things going on here. You have revelation being referred to by Peter, and then you have James also joining in with Peter on the same track with Peter, on the same track saying, you know, we don't need to have the Gentiles become Jews. And James is going down that road, and as he goes down that road, he quotes Amos. But again, that's a sermon for another time. In the case of Peter, Peter is saying, look at this history. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did, verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. That was the rationale back in chapter 11 of Acts that Peter gave, that the Gentiles have received the same Holy Spirit. And there's salvation's binary, zeros and ones. You either have the Holy Spirit or you're in the kingdom. And yes, we have all kinds of different Christian expressions and we have differences of opinion on things. But at the end of the day, it's a binary thing. You're either in the kingdom and have the Holy Spirit or you don't. And Peter points out that there's no distinction made when the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius' household. It looks the same as it looked when the Holy Spirit came upon 
Jewish background believers. And because of that, you see Peter affirming here the unity of the church and the unity of this work of salvation. And then in verse 10, I believe Peter is now moving towards a slight rebuke, maybe even a more than a slight rebuke, of the verse 5 believers who are of the Pharisee party because he's now challenging those who would hold that view. In verse 10 it says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? When he's speaking to those people who are saying that the believers out in those Gentile lands have to be circumcised and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 5. So Peter's saying to the assembly, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Well, in this text, you have a group of Pharisees mentioned in verse 5. And we know from Matthew 23 that the Pharisees were a, were a group of people who by and large with the exception of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, or at least men, these men of the council. But by and large, the Pharisees were a group of people who did not receive Jesus as Messiah. Rather, in Matthew 23, you remember the, the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So scribes and Pharisees were not on the right track in our Lord's ministry. They were demonstrating by their behavior and by their teachings, they were on the wrong track. They had departed from the gospel that pointed forward, as Jesus teaches, that the whole Old Testament points to him, and yet the Pharisees and the scribes, the experts in the Old Testament, somehow they veered, and when the Messiah showed up, they didn't get it. They missed. That old phrase, they missed the gospel, what, by a foot, the distance from your head to your heart, they, they missed the gospel. The Pharisees were in error. And why were they in error? Well, by that time, we know they had added a bunch of additional things to the law of Moses to try and make things even more able to do what God said. So in one sense, their intent was decent, but in another sense, they tamed the law and they almost made it, well, they made it so that they felt like they could achieve it, as the Apostle Paul would testify as a Pharisee, that in, in Philippians, he talks about how he was working his way to God and was a very good Pharisee. But then he realized that was not the gospel. So Peter challenges this group of people. And I think we have in view two things. We have in view the fact that the Pharisees had all these additional laws that they would count as a yoke, that they'd put on the neck of the disciples, all these additional rules. But I also think we need to look at the Old Testament dispensation as it's fading away. These people are not going to be going to the temple to sacrifice lambs because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed and is raised. These Christians are moving into the future. Things are changing. What day is this? This is Sunday. This is not the ordained Old Testament day for worship, is it? It was Saturday. But things change. There has been change. There is continuity and discontinuity as we move through the Testaments, but there's a whole bunch of things in the Old Testament, and Jesus says in Matthew 5 to 7 that the law is fulfilled in him. And he's not just talking about the narrow sense of the law. We're looking at the whole of the law and the prophets. They come and they fill up in Christ and they go forward. We're not saying, you know, sometimes people say, I live under grace, not under law, you know, kind of as a bad 
characterization of the entire word of God. The Old Testament saints understood that they lived in grace. Those that were saved understood that the types and shadows of the Old Covenant were there to foresignify Christ to come and to put faith in the fact of Christ to come. It wasn't just about living under the law to perform the religion of the Old Testament, but rather to see Christ in it. But the Old Testament dispensation didn't have the clarity of Christ. And so we know from the New Testament that the Old Testament saints are viewed as living under the law as a tutor, a schoolmaster. They were children. And you say, well, were they really children? Well, how about the end of Judges? Things were not pretty at the end of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are people who should have known better. And then think about 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, after great error. Remember Mount Carmel? Before 722 B.C., you had Mount Carmel. Elijah on Mount Carmel. You had the prophets of Baal there. And in addition to the prophets of Baal being in the court of Ahab and Jezebel, they weren't there, but there were the other set of prophets of Asherah. Those were Canaanite gods, false gods. And the people of God who had the biblical revelation in the northern kingdom were guilty of following after false gods. 722 B.C., great error. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom Judah falls to Babylon. They failed to learn the message that they should have seen from the, their sister. Seven, um, what happened in the northern kingdom, biblically speaking, God refers to what happened to Israel as happening to a sister of Judah. So you watch your relative, your sister, go into captivity in Assyria because of their idolatry. You'd think they would have learned, but under Manasseh and others, Judah did not learn. They went into captivity. They come back from captivity, and you think all would be better. They would have learned their lessons. But if you look at the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, you look at Ezra and Nehemiah as well, no, the return community is not perfect. They don't really want to give proper sacrifice. They want to withhold the animals that have blemishes. You know, they don't, their heart's not really in it. Now, they may have been cured of idolatry. They may not be worshiping Asherah and Baal anymore, but still, there's a fundamental problem. The Old Testament pointed the way to Christ, but there's so many wanderings. They were so prone to wander. Yes, we feel prone to wander, but, as, but we see that they needed to have the fullness of gospel revelation to cure those wandering ways. So that that yoke of the Old Testament was a yoke for them. And they arrived at the time that the Messiah arrived and what happened when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem with God's people? Did they gladly receive the Old Testament promised Messiah, or did they nail him to a cross? We know what happened. And you and I both know that if we had been there, our voices would have said, crucify him. We would have been convinced by those religious leaders to do what the crowd did as well. We can see that in our own sinful nature. So, Peter says to the assembly, why are you putting a yoke on these people that we couldn't bear, that the Jews couldn't bear? And that's, it's been proven through biblical history. We need to live in the fullness of the arrival 
of the Lord Jesus, as Peter goes on to say in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's where our salvation comes from. Peter says there with the we believe, that means the Jewish background believers believe that they will be saved through the free gift or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he provides salvation. And then you go back to verse 9, as Peter's saying about the Gentiles, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. You can think of the image of circumcision of the heart for the Gentiles. Their hearts were circumcised. They were cleansed. How were they cleansed? By faith. In the English, the word faith doesn't sound quite the same as believe in verse 11, but in the Greek, there, there's a verb for belief, pista, that's got the root pistis in it, and so does the noun. And so from the Greek perspective, that word faith and believe, we could read verse 11 as, but we have faith that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So the Jewish background believers are saved by faith, and the Gentile background believers are saved by faith. Now, I'm not going to leave the old covenant people out of this. Remember the whole faith in Hebrews chapter 11? They were saved by faith. The entire old covenant dispensation was pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, and they were saved by faith through grace, just as we are saved by grace through faith. And so we see, as we look at this passage, a reaffirmation of something that is entirely the message of God, that you and I are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians is a good couple of verses to memorize there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In my early days as a young Christian, I sometimes thought that the work I did to get saved, was that the work I did was to have faith. Well, if you look at Ephesians... For as by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So why do I believe and my brothers do not believe? My brothers after the flesh. It's not because I'm any smarter than my brothers, though I like to tell myself I might be. Though actually, my, my one brother's a PhD. So, I'm, <clears throat> well, anyway... So, and I, my other brother, he's got a master's in engineering. So I'm, uh, I'm probably not any brighter than my brothers. But I'm saved because the Lord Jesus was pleased in his timing to change my heart and give me the gift of a new heart so that he could work faith in me through the power of the Spirit to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago to save sinners like me and to pay the price on that cross for the sin I deserve and the sin you deserve. That's why it's called good news. You don't add your own works to it. 
Derek Thomas, we were doing a, a study that he was doing on Galatians, and he was saying the problem with works and, you know, with thinking that you get saved by grace, but then you got to stay saved by your works as you get on that treadmill and you build up your assurance by being on the treadmill of doing good works. And that's how you feel like you're saved. No, that's, that's not correct. Get off that treadmill. You're a child of God. And being a child of God, you are dearly loved. And by being a child of God, you will bring forth fruit that the Holy Spirit works in you. Even just like a little child, you'll make mistakes, you'll sin. But your assurance is based on the fact of the grace of Jesus Christ through the faith that you have in believing in the work of Christ and work done for you. And that's where you rest your assurance. You rest your assurance on the promises of God that all who call upon the name of the Lord, interesting there, all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you hear my voice and you're saying, well, do I know who Christ is? Well, remember the promises of God, not not promising to yourself or working in yourself something, but trust God that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving us the gospel. We look forward, Lord, to seeing you face-to-face someday and giving you the praises face-to-face that we lift here this side of glory before you for the great salvation you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to rest in that salvation and to take that gospel message into the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.